joining us today. I'm Dr. Matt Farlow. And uh, to my, uh, well, for you guys on Facebook, uh, up above me is uh, to the right is Dr. Metzger and to the left is Dr. Harper. And today we're stoked to be talking about uh, Trinitarian theology. Um, all of us have gotten a chance to write on Trinitarian theology. We've discussed it in its uh, core of new wine theology. And yet most Christians, like uh, non-Christians today, uh, hear or read the word God and their immediate, even second and third thoughts uh, do not automatically inevitably link uh, to the thought of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, they usually think about a God of some type of supreme monad. Um, and so today we want to discuss this uh, Trinitarian theology prospects and perils for cultural engagement. So uh, first, uh, Dr. Metzger, why don't you take it in, what is the doctrine of Trinity? When we talk about doctrine, people hear about doctrinal thought, doc doctrines of the church, um, and then they hear about Trinity, and they, I'm sure they've heard it, uh, many things about Trinity, whether or not the word itself appears in the Bible. So when we say doctrine of Trinity, what are we talking about? Uh, thanks, Matt, and it'd be great to have Brad weigh in as well on this. Uh, and I should just say, you know, for us at New Wine, New Wineskins, uh, we think in terms of the Trinitarian uh, God, we think in terms of uh, the kingdom of the Trinity, uh, the Trinitarian God, the gospel uh, of the kingdom of the Trinitarian God. So it, it uh, oozes out of new wine, new wineskins. And uh, for, for Brad and me with our book, Exploring Ecclesiology, it was all about the Trinitarian kingdom reality and shaping the church from that vantage point. And from the get-go, from 2000, when we uh, created New Wine, it was all about how do we live into the reality of the triune God. So that's why it's really important to us at New Wine. And so the Trinity, of course, is articulated in a variety of ways. You think of Nicaea, and Brad might want to come in and talk more about, more about Nicaea. But, you know, just very briefly, one God, three persons. One God, three persons. Uh, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we see it in the Great Commission, as it's called, uh, as you're going, make the disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, singular name, name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, we see in the baptism of Jesus, where the Father says, this is my beloved Son, and the Spirit descends as a dove. When Paul talks in Ephesians 1 about election, it's God has chosen us in his beloved, and we are sealed in the Holy Spirit. So much of the apostolic writings, the New Testament, that is, breathe out this reality that God is triune. The word triune or trinity does not appear, just like having a personal relationship with Jesus does not appear in the scriptures. But the idea of a personal relationship is there with Jesus. Uh, as is the idea of what the Trinity is trying to convey, that Jesus is one with the Father. He'll say that the Father is greater than all, yet he and the Father are one. He accepts worship like the Father receives worship. Uh, we see the Spirit of God having the same perfections or attributes as the Father and Son do. So we could go on and on and on. But it was in light of looking at the New Testament that the, what are called the Church Fathers tried to grapple with this, saying there's distinction, there's difference between the Father and the Son, and yet there's this profound union. 
And we see this with the Spirit, too, that the Spirit is personal. And the Spirit is one who is united with the Father and the Son. And so the church fathers tried to convey, tried to convey in the best possible terms available to them what was going on there in the biblical text and came up with this language of Trinity, one God, three persons. Robert Jensen, uh, leading theologian in the United States who passed away recently said, the three persons are the one God. That's a unique way of saying it. Uh, but it's the idea of one God, three persons, not tritheism, three gods, three, three-headed God or what have you, three persons, one God, not subordinationism, the idea that Jesus is less in his uh, nature than God. Uh, and it's not what is called modalism, that there's just one God behind these three modes or mass that Father is one of those mass, Son is one of those mass, the Spirit is one of those mass. But really, God is behind all that, different from it. We're saying God is one God, three persons, Trinity. Dr. Harper, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, uh, I like what you say when you talk about, you know, the early church fathers were just trying to put together um, and comprehend what they saw in the text. Uh, when, when, they, when the Father was talked about, when the Son was talked about, when the Spirit was talked about, and when they realized that personhood and deity was talked about in terms of all of them, that distinction and unity was talked about in terms of all of them, they tried to take these pieces and bring them together and say, what this means is God is triune. But of course, what they were doing in doing that was trying to comprehend the incomprehensible. And so it's important for us to understand, too, when we talk about God this way, that we were we are talking about a God who is incomprehensible, as Paul mentions in Roman chapter Romans chapter eleven. After you know ten chapters of incredibly logical, rational theology describing God and all of this type of stuff, he throws up his hands and says, "You know, how can I possibly understand him? He's so far beyond anything I could ever think about." You know, and so here's Paul explaining the incomprehensible. So, you know the when talking about God as triune, it's something that we state. It's something that we believe. It's something that comes from the text and from the story of the text, but that doesn't mean it's something that we fully comprehend. Uh, if we could fully comprehend how it is that God is triune, we would be as great as God, um, but, but we're not. Um, he's, he's beyond us. And so we live in the tension between putting the pieces together in the scriptures to comprehend who God is and recognizing that as we're talking about him as the triune God, he's still incomprehensible. So when somebody says to me, hey, listen, I really get the Trinity. I, I tend to run in the opposite direction because <laughs> it's, no, you don't. Uh, you can state it and that's great. I'm, I'm there, but that you get it? No, I don't think so. So uh, so we have the doctrine, and you guys both uh, mentioned uh, the church father. About Trinitarian theology. So you have doctrine you, of the, of the Trinity. Again, of, uh, state that again, it, it froze. Uh, so uh, we've been talking about the doctrine of the Trinity, the precepts, the, the foundation of it. 
how is that different or is it or is it distinct from what is trinitarian theology when we talk about theology from a trinitarian standpoint what does it mean when we say trinitarian theology then and matt you know you uh have been a part of this conversation with us for a long time uh you were really the first of uh the new wine interns leading the charge many years ago and uh it's something you were passionate about from the from the get-go uh i think you actually worked with me in terms of indexing did you not for the book uh trinitarian soundings and systematic theology and the whole point of that book was really as the title says to do soundings yeah. in trinitarian thought and uh, I was, of course, greatly influenced by my doctoral mentor, Colin Gunton. Uh, the book was dedicated to his honor and a variety of figures with a passion for Trinitarian theology sought to approach systematic theology from a Trinitarian lens. I remember reaching out to one evangelical theologian who had written a couple of books on the Trinity, and I thought he'd be a good one to ask to write an article on a particular subject, and, and his response was a giveaway to me in terms of not getting what I'm going to unpack as Trinitarian theology. He said, I've already written two books on the Trinity. Why would I want to write anything more? We weren't asking him to write on the Trinity as such. We were asking him to write from the vantage point of Trinitarian thought on a particular doctrine. What difference, for example, does the doctrine of the Trinity make for atonement theory? What difference does the doctrine of the Trinity make for revelation? prolegomena, and eschatology, and even the understanding of the divine attributes or perfections. As Colin Gunton, who we, we had an article from, from him that actually came from uh, the book uh, on the divine attributes that he wrote, and it was published posthumously. He delivered those lectures at Multnomah University with, uh, um, on, on the, that subject. And for him, it was always the matter of how do we take seriously God revealed in Jesus in the spirit for understanding of God? So like, for example, power. What difference does Jesus make, even in his incarnate reality, for understanding divine power or divine wisdom or holiness? I think there's huge implications. There are huge implications for that. As Dr. Harper said, certainly God is mysterious. God is mysterious in Revelation, we never know God for all that God is, but we still have a good grasp of God, but it's never exhaustible. It's inexhaustible. So God, I always like to say, even thinking through Karl Barth's theology, God is greater than what he is in Revelation, but never different from. It's not that God is going to be somehow different, that the God behind Revelation is, you know, like the Wizard of Oz or Darth Vader. No, what we see in Jesus is what we get with God, even though God is still greater than what God is in Revelation. I think that fits perfectly with what Dr. Harper was saying. I don't think it contradicts what he was saying at all. But thinking through what difference does the doctrine of the Trinity make for understanding divine perfections? And even the Holy Spirit, Gunton would say, is never the spirit who closes off the Trinity from us, as we sometimes think of with aseity, but really it's the matter of God in God's perfect communion within the Trinity the Spirit does not close the circle, but opens the circle to invite us in to participate in the life of the Triune God. That's an attempt to try and take seriously Trinitarian theology or Trinitarian thought forms for systematic theology. At New Wine and Wineskins, we tried to go even further with that to think through what difference does it make for cultural engagement. 
And one of those emphases is how to think incarnationally as we participate. We're not incarnations of God. We participate in the one incarnation of God, Jesus Christ, who continues, as the book of Acts says, what he began to talk about. That's Luke talking to Theophilus, Acts chapter 1. What I spoke about, what I wrote about in my former book, about what Jesus began to do and teach, implying that now Jesus continues in his ascended state through the Spirit to operate through the church. I would ask that Dr. Harper would speak to the matter of how the triune God if we think through Trinitarian theology for cultural engagement, what difference does it make when we think not just of God, but God in Jesus through the Spirit in history, what difference does that make for the church's engagement of our culture at large? Brad, would you be willing to speak to that? Yeah, well, I think I'll back up a little bit first and just just say that, you know, when I think about Trinitarian theology, um, a very simple way I think about it is, um, using the Trinity as a lens through which to do theology, a lens through which to think theologically. Um, and this is something that really wasn't done for a long time in the West, you know. Um, in, in the East, um, the Eastern Fathers, and, and as they went on, you know, through the Middle Ages and, and further into the East, they, they tended much more to use the Triune God as, as this lens through which to think about theological ideas. In the West, we kind of got through Nicaea and Chalcedon, and then we said, okay, we know what the Trinity is now. And then we set it on a shelf as kind of an aspect of theology that we talk about every once in a while. But, but we didn't use it as a lens through which to look at the rest of theology. I think that's what's important, what's unique about, you know, Trinitarian thought. And yeah, it changes everything in terms of how we see God. I, you were talking about power, Paul. I, I think it was you who told me many years ago that it was Hitler who used to call God the Almighty. Uh, and, you know, when you think of power, when you think of that kind of power, that's a very scary power. That's not a comforting power. Um, but because God's power is never disconnected from his loving relationality in the triune God, God's love isn't simply scary. It's comforting. It's encouraging, right? And so um, then when we think about cult cultural engagement um, and engaging the world, I mean, that might be even an interesting way to look at it just think about what does it look like for us to be people of power as we engage the world you know and in today's conversations the three of us on this screen are people of power because we're white men you know and so what does it look like for us to be people of, of power who are engaging the culture um, with the message of the gospel and and of course because the triune god is is all about relationship because the triune god in christ demonstrates that relationality means self-sacrifice for the other. It's always about being for the other. Um, for us, it means that, that we, we, we are going to have a very destructive understanding of our own power unless we understand that power means surrendering ourselves to the other and using the power we have for the other rather than for ourselves. Uh, so it's just one little aspect of how to think about social engagement and gospel engagement. We think about the triune God. Yeah, and so we've been talking about so the prospects of it, and then we come to uh, some of the perils. And uh, I think uh, you wrote a blog a while back, uh, Paul, quoting uh, Leslie Newbegin, and I just want to put this up uh, so people can see the quote because it's a fairly long quotation that uh, he has here. Um, but he's talking about um, it has been said that the question of the Trinity 
let's see here. Is that share? Let's see. Share. I want to share that with everyone. Okay. Uh, it's been said that the can you see it? Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, that one theological question that has been, uh, the Trinity is the one theological question that has been really settled. Uh, it would, I think, be nearer to the truth to say that the Nicene formula has been so devoutly hallowed that it is effectively put out of circulation. It's been treated like the talent that was buried for safekeeping rather than risked in the commerce for discussion of discussion. The church continues to repeat the Trinitarian formula, but unless I'm greatly mistaken, the ordinary Christian in the Western world who hears or reads the word God does not immediately and inevitably think of the triune being, Father, Son, and Spirit. He thinks of a supreme monad. Not many preachers, I suspect, look forward eagerly to Trinity Sunday, the working concept of God for most ordinary Christians, if one may venture a bold guess, shaped more by co the combination of Greek philosophy and Islamic theology that was powerfully injected in the thought of Christendom at the beginning of the middle, high Middle Ages than by the thought of the fathers of the first four centuries. Says a lot there. So the question then for uh, both of you then is when he's talking about the idea and the use of the Trinity, he's speaking of this rise of negligence. What gives rise to this negligence and the way in which the Trinity then is used, uh, especially in today's culture, 2020, because today likes to push and, and press into relationality. Church does this. So what is the negligence or what gives rise to the negligence of attending to the doctrine of Trinity in today's culture? I think one, one aspect is what I believe uh, Brad was getting at earlier. There is a kind of rationalism that comes into play that um, I, think, I think you said, Brad, that you know once in the West, we kind of got it down. We kind of moved on and treated it as one part of theology. Uh, I mean, the, the Trinity is a, a mystery to worship. And I think, and again, you'll see this in the West and the East. I, I so love what I find in certain Greek Orthodox and Orthodox theology with theology as worship. And of course, Calvin would say that. And I know, you know, Bonaventure and Aquinas would have said that as, as well. And, you know, so I'm not trying to take away from any, you know, particular tradition. Uh, but rationalism is something, especially in the modern period, that comes into play. I, I remember talking about Trinitarian theology with uh, a theologian philosopher, and I, I believe in wanting to do both theology and philosophy well. But this particular theologian philosopher said, the Trinity is the greatest mystery of the Christian faith. Leave it alone. Now, Brad wasn't saying before, leave it alone. He just said, it's the greatest mystery. Never think you've grasped it worship this God that we stumble over trying to understand with our brains and it always exceeds it. That's how I heard gravity. He wasn't saying leave it alone. We need to enter in and participate and, and muse in, into this mystery and the like. But I think a certain kind of rationalism and Michael Buckley in his book, The Origins of Modern Atheism said that with the rise of modern atheism, not ancient atheism, but modern atheism, the great apologists of the Christian faith the apologists of the Christian faith decided not to engage Spinoza and others by way of Trinitarian thought forms. They met them on their own terms rather than always coming through their own particular Christian frame of reference. Jonathan Edwards, I think, never left to the side 
a certain kind of Trinitarian ontology uh, and how he engaged in his concern for early modern atheism. But much of the modern apologists thought of the Trinity as something like, well, we believe it. It's of course important for us, but we shouldn't seek to bring that forth in terms of our engagement at large. In my own book on apologetics and the like, Connecting Christ, I really tried to think in terms of a Trinitarian lens. I didn't want to leave the Trinity at bay. So I think a certain kind of rationalism that kind of um, says the Trinity is the greatest mystery, leave it alone, comes into play. Two other things quickly. I think our consumerism, our base consumerism, where unless it's easy, unless it makes me feel good in the moment, I'm not going to necessarily engage in the Trinity's, Trinity's too hard sledding to really wrestle through. I think all too often our worship does not convey the depth of our faith. It's, it's, I hate to say it, but sometimes it's just thin pea soup with some of the, the, the words and the like. It doesn't have the depth of Charles Wesley, to say the least. And then lastly, I would say pragmatism. If it doesn't work, don't do it. And what works is what's expedient, what's in the moment, what affects church growth the most. And we'll come to the other peril later, but how the Trinity is not ignored these three points with rationalism, consumerism, pragmatism, but where it's actually abused or used inappropriately, um, where it's also a peril. But Brad, your thoughts on this? I think one of the things I see is is somewhat connected to your pragmatism and and you know and and Christian personalism in the sense that uh, uh, I think often, at least in American Christianity, um, people have uh, looked at the persons of the Trinity uh, and and they think about, when they think about God, they think about the person of the Trinity that they um, are most attracted to in that particular moment, or the person of the Trinity who they think does this or does that. You know, so when I need, you know, a really soft, you know, person of the Trinity, and I'm going to think of Jesus, you know, because you know, he's the one that poured his life out for me. I'm not going to think of the Father, and that's the scary guy, you know, with the power. And, and, uh, and of course, in the Middle Ages, this is what happened with Mary. You know, they do was even Jesus was too scary. So we go through his mom, you know, because of course she's going to be really tender. I'm not necessarily dissing that. I'm just saying that was part of Catholic thinking in terms of Mary as one who helps us. You know, um, you know, we think of oh the spiritual gifts and and you know these this energy you know that I get. I think about the Holy Spirit, but it's just this this separation of the persons into distinct you know, um, experiences in the life of the church is really problematic. I ask my students a lot when we're talking about this, I say, okay, when you think of the Exodus, what person of the Trinity do you think of who's making the Exodus happen? And they all say the same thing. Well, it's the Father. It's the Father who's doing the Exodus. I'm so like, so like, what were the Son and the Spirit doing at this point? Were they just kind of like sitting on the sidelines, twiddling their thumbs, Jesus going, man, I can't wait till I can get involved in this thing. You know, I mean, it's absurd. Um, and, and, and so we, we tend to do this kind of personal experience things, thing in terms of which God we think about. I think, you know, when evangelicals often, when they're worshiping, they're, really, they're thinking about Jesus. And it's Jesus, 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 you know. And, and of course, we need to sing about Jesus. He's great. He's wonderful. But are we really thinking about this one who is triune? And the problem is when you separate those persons from one another, you end up getting some troublingly different characteristics of each one, right? So you get this, the father, the person has you know, this power and all this type of stuff. And, and we lose this idea that God is a humble God, 
right? The Father's a humble God, right? We only can get that if we look at Jesus, you know, and, and realize that Jesus said, you want to see the Father? Look at me. <laughs> this is what I do. I give myself up. I'm humble, you know? And so um, I, I think that's an aspect of, of what kind of gets us messed up too. Yeah, and it's just interesting on that point with Exodus, you know, one of my favorite texts is the burning bush scene where it's the angel of the Lord is the one through whom God speaks, right? And I am who I am. I will be who I will be when Moses asked God for telling him his name and the angel's speaking. And uh, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I am the Lord, which, of course, is picked up in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, you know, with Kyrios. And my understanding is with Romans 10, where Paul says, those who confess Jesus is Lord, uh, believe in their hearts that God raised from the dead. Curios there, Paul has in mind the God of Exodus, yeah. uh, the one who delivers just as Moses was the one who, through whom God led the people. Ultimately, Jesus is the one to whom Moses points and the one through whom God leads his people. And in John 8, before Abraham was, I am. Mm-hmm. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. Uh, so, you know, complete concurrence on that. So uh, take it away, Matt. Yeah, well, and I always, I mean, we've talked about this, Paul. You know, we, um, I like Genesis 32. Uh, the angel of the Lord is said to wrestle with uh, Jacob. And I always ask, you know, if it's the angel of the Lord, because there's a naming there uh, and there's a blessing there. And these are very godlike uh, characteristics. If this is God, who would be the one wrestling with Jacob, you know, um, in the person? Uh, and we just got a, a, there's a question too that I want to follow up with you both uh, from, in, in light of what we've been talking about and from Facebook, this question was sent to us. Uh, uh, Pastor Calhoun says, uh, it's difficult to preach, right? The Trinity is difficult to preach. And he says, I delivered a talk last year when a fellow clergy in the room said, oh no, we don't want to hear about that. So how would you or should we develop a Trinitarian worship style? Yeah, and I'll ask Brad uh, to, to speak to that. He wrote the chapter on that for uh, our book, Exploring Ecclesiology, and uh, also as a pastor of 13 years. And if, if I'm not mistaken with, uh, you know, Pastor Calhoun, if it's the Pastor Calhoun I know, this is someone who's deeply immersed as uh, both an author, uh, a theologian, and a leader of worship as a professional musician. So Brad, uh, your your response uh, in dialogue with Pastor Calhoun. Yeah, well, I guess one of the things I would say about it is when we think about worship, we think about relationship. You know, wor- worship, and it, worship is is a huge word, and I I don't want to separate worship into like like you've got music and then that's worship and preaching is not. I don't think that at all. But when we think about worship, we think about turning towards God in relationship responding to what he has done for us, to his initiation to us relationally. We respond to that relationally in thanksgiving and praise. And there's this relationship um, going on. And I think the, the triune God is the absolute first and most important foundation to all of that. Because what I talk to people about a lot when I, you know, when I'm doing a theology of the Trinity in the, in the church and, and talking about worship is, you know, God didn't have to create anything in order to be in relationship. God has been in relationship forever, Father, Son, and 
uh, spirit in loving relationship. And it is, and this is why when God creates us and engages us, it draws our worship. It draws this relational response because the God who has created us has created us in his image, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which means that as human beings, the most fundamental and most important issue for our essence and our fulfillment is relationship. Nothing matters more in human life than relationship. And, and worship is relationship. And the reason nothing matters more than relationship is because the relational God created us in his image. So to me, I mean, that's the foundation of worship. Yeah, very good. Yeah, great question, great answer. Yeah, and uh, would you both uh, uh, agree with this too? Um, one of the aspects of worship that sometimes is neglected because Sunday mornings don't include this is the idea of service, you know, serving one another. And so one of the setting up a theology of worship uh, with the Trinitarian foundation is, as you're saying, uh, Brad, it's relational. And so one of the greatest ways that we can relate to one another and then worship the God that uh, loves us is to serve one another. And so in some of the uh, aspects from uh, church leadership that my wife and I have, uh, led is that teaching people that once we our acts towards God should always be um, worship. And so when we come into the church, then to step into that relational truth of one another that um, I need you and you need me and that we are relationally connected. Uh, the greatest way to worship God together then is finding ways in which we can serve one another, but then also taking that relationality, the truth of the relational love, out into the community and then worshiping through that, worshiping through our acts of service. Um, because yeah. so often we see worship Sunday mornings with just, we want to music. Yeah, it takes away from our lives being the musical uh, a creation for those that are outside of the church. Um, so drawing from that too, this idea of theology of worship, um, the doctrine has been used for relational purposes and its reemergence is also um, then allowed for people to, you know, possibly abuse it in its interpretation. And so I want to put this quote up again from Leslie Newbegin. Uh, we're using Newbegin twice today. So here's this, the quotation that says the doctrine of Trinity was not developed in response to the human need for participatory democracy. So we've been talking about participation, participation, relationality, He's saying it's not developed in response to this. It was developed in order to account for the facts that constitute the substance of the gospel. I guess that's, uh, uh, so that was New Beginning as quoted by uh, Van Hooser in his, his book. So an article uh, Paul, when we're talking about this, uh, let me see. Yeah, it's an article in a book edited by Okay, me. so what, what, uh, Got it. Got it. Sorry. So would you speak then into how the doctrine of the Trinity has been abused? Sure. And I think what Newbegin was getting at there is that what we find a lot in certain social Trinitarian contexts, and, you know, I, I, I think that there are social aspects, psychological aspects, whatever one wishes to say, we won't get into all that discussion today. We had a great interview at New Wine with 
uh, Derek Peterson, a colleague of ours, uh, used to work with New Wine, uh, and he did a, he's written on this for our journal Cultural Encounters. I encourage people to read about the three waves of Trinitarian thought. Carl Bart and others are often seen as uh, part of the first wave of the Renaissance and Trinitarian theology. Uh, the second wave is those like John Zazulis, Colin Gunton, and others. And third wave is more of, uh, shall we say, a critical analysis, analytical critical analysis of uh, some of what's happened previously. And of course, there's more to it than that. Um, well, I think that uh, some of the, the second waivers have not always been um, treated fairly with their proper safeguards against the very thing that Newbegin's concern for. Nonetheless, what Newbegin, I think, and others were after, and I'll get right to the point, is that, you know, the Trinity is a unique phenomenon. As Brad said, it is the great mystery. So we talk about perichoresis, which is used both to talk about the Father and Son and Spirit in relationship, categories of coherence, perichoresis, that the Father and Son and Spirit indwell, mutually indwell one another. They do not have their identity separate from one another. The Father is not separate from the Son. The Son is not separate from the Father. The Spirit is not separate from them, and they're not separate from the Spirit. They mutually indwell one another. So that when you think Father, you must always think of the Son. The Father is always the Father of the Son. The Son is always the Son of the Father. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. They're always mutually cohering. We are not, as the church, the fourth person of the Trinity. Uh, we don't have perichoresis. When people use the language of perichoresis, what I just said, mutual interpenetration, and say that we have that same kind of dynamic that God has, that is a category mistake. I mean, Trinitarian theology would be of, of what I take to be the most robust form, but say, no, that is unique to God. We can image it in certain ways that we do not have our identities separate from one another, but we don't exist in that same way. Even John Zazulis said that with divinization or theosis, um, that we do not become gods by nature. We're only as believers for the Greek Orthodox notion of theosis. Um, we partake of the divine nature it's always by grace, not by nature, because God must always be safeguarding that way. And so what Newbegin is, is after saying, we can't look at like participatory democracy and say, well, the Trinity basically functions as a construct to honor that. No, the Trinity is about the Trinity and the presentation of the good news of God revealed to us in Jesus Christ to call us, to invite us through the Spirit, to participate in God's life. That's what the Trinity is about. And it might have a bearing in how we relate in a variety of forms, this doctrine, but it doesn't exist for those, those ideas, those social constructs. I'm all for engaging socially and holistically, but we have to guard the Trinity as an understanding of the Trinity as what is called sui generis, unto itself. But this God is always for us in the reality of communion, as Brad said, because God is the most relational being on the face of the earth. The last point I'll make there is I love Rublev's icon of the Holy Trinity. We use that a lot at New Wine, where you see the Father and Son and Spirit imaged by the three angels of the tree of Mamre with Abram. And 
there's always this looking one to the other, looking to the Father as the Son and the Spirit, but looking outward, open outward toward us, roasted lamb in a chalice, open table, and we, the viewers, are called to participate, to enter in. I think that's a beautiful image that God reaches out to us. None of that's in question here. We're just saying, but we need to make sure that the Trinity stays the Trinity and it's about the gospel, what the scriptures portray. And then it has implications for how we engage in all kinds of contexts in a variety of social settings, both in democratic society and non-democratic society as the church, because God works through his church first and foremost as the agent of the kingdom of God. Yeah, Brad? Yeah. Um, so I, I think what we need to do in this is when we think about using the Trinity as a lens for doing theology, we just need to keep our, our thought processes, and, and I'm really building on what you just said here, Paul. We need to think our, keep our thought processes about how the triune God is a lens for theology as close to how God is, who he is, and how he actually engages the world. I mean, because you can ask the question, okay, well, Brad, you've just said the Trinity is a lens for how the church should engage society. Aren't we kind of getting a step or two down? Yes, but we're always doing it through this sense of how does God engage the world? How does the triune God engage the world? And we see a lot of that in scripture, right? So I think it makes sense to do, to make that type of movement to say, here's how the triune God engages the world. Thus, here's how we, as his image bearers and followers, this is what our basic pr um, principles should be about engaging the world. I think that's close enough that we can make that jump. But sometimes we make jumps that are a little bit too far with things like, you know, for example, a lot of people really try to use one or another version of the Trinity or understanding of the Trinity as, as their foundational piece for, okay, this is why husbands are head of the homes and wives are equal in worth, but lower in power and that type of stuff. And they say, because that's the way the Trinity is. Whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, the, the theology of the Trinity in the scriptures, it just isn't directly connected to that reality. Um, it, and and so, so that's a big jump. And, and when we do that, we're in danger of actually taking things in our own situation, like the democracy deal, and reading those things back into the Trinity. And now we distort the Trinity, right? Uh, because we're taking human constructs and reading those back into the reality of the Trinity. When we get two and three steps away from who God is and how he engages the world, we start to get in danger of those types of things. And so we just need to be very careful. Yeah, and you know, just to your point, you mentioned power before. Um, and we think of Karl Barth, who's one of the key figures in the Renaissance of Trinitarian theology, when he was really principally responsible for the, the Barman Declaration, 1934, against national socialism in Germany. And he said, there's no other Fuhrer besides Jesus Christ. Uh, and, you know, that was a frontal assault on the Third Reich, which was a millennial kingdom, uh, and how the Nazis looked at power, to your point, uh, how they looked at love for the fatherland, for the folk, and not for the, the stranger, the alien. And, you know, you think about, I mean, there's plenty in scripture on how to engage contemporary culture, if we're really listening how we engage the undocumented, how we engage the people on the outside. Scripture is filled with care for the orphan, the widow, the alien in their distress. 
And that all is at the heartbeat of God and Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. And that looks very different from our downside up kingdoms. It should be the upside down kingdom that we see. And Paul's saying it's the foolishness of the cross that is the wisdom of God. It's the weakness of the cross that's the power of God. And yet all too often in North American Christianity with our fear that we're losing control, unfortunately and grievously, we look more like the Third Reich at times in terms of the kinds of dynamics. We don't go as far as the Third Reich. I, I won't stretch it. But I would say that the dynamics of power look a, have more similarity there than they do toward the gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Matt, are you still there? And so we <laughs> we talked about uh, well, I it's either me or my internet that's unstable. So you know I'm in and out. You You're know, stable. Uh, You're I'm stable. a mystery. You're uh, it, which is interesting that we talk about the mystery. Yeah. We'll we'll see. History will tell. We talk about uh, uh, mystery. You've talked about this, Brad. Paul, you even mentioned this as well. And yet, both of you have said the Bible is very clear as to how the this Godhead interacts with uh the people of god okay so what are the prospects then uh moving forward into this we've talked about abuse we've talked about some of the perils and things so what would be the prospect of moving into this or moving forward so as to have a robust paul i think that's what uh adjective you use robust trinitarian theology um, for engagement for doctrine what are the prospects yeah brad why don't you uh start there if you would like yeah, sure. Well, what I, I think where I would start is just to say that, especially when you're dealing with, uh, you froze there, Matt. So I missed that question. I would just go ahead, Brad. Yeah. So, um, you know, when I think about, about prospects for Trinitarian theology, for me, Again, it starts with relationship. That um, what we do is uh, we bring relationship up to the top of our thinking in terms of how we engage the world. Because God in his core is this relational God. I mean, it's interesting, you know, when Luther, uh, this is what Luther did. Uh, the Middle Ages, you know, they were using Thomas, they were using uh, Aristotle. Thomas Aquinas was using Aristotle. And Aristotle places the, the category of relationship quite low uh, in, his, in his boxes of how to see and think about things. Luther took relationship and put it back up at the top and said, you know, when we want to think about God, we need to think about this God, this relational God of love. And, and while Luther didn't always display that very well in terms of his ideas about engaging culture, you know, his instincts were right. And so when we think about uh, the relational God, the triune God, and engaging the world and the church serving the world, and we think about relationship first, that's not how we've always done it. Um, in the contemporary uh, uh, American uh, world, um, American evangelical Christianity has often thought in terms of conquest, conquest of culture, onward Christian soldiers. You know, there are lots of language on fighting the battle against culture, very us against them, you know, kind of approach to culture, winning. We have to win, win, win. Um, those are, are not really relational approaches. Uh, and, and I think if we think of the relational God 
as the foundation for the church's service and its ministry, we need to be thinking, bringing relationship up to a higher level. Now, some people say, well, you know, say, but Brad, you know, truth, truth has got to be at the highest level. Listen, I don't want to sacrifice truth. I don't want to be in relationship with the world at the expense of truth. But the problem is we have too often used truth as a hammer. And we've used truth to say, I have the better idea, so I'm going to defeat you with my idea, and I'm going to show you why your idea is ludicrous. Um, that's not a relational approach of service and ministry. It's one that didn't work in my generation, and it's less likely to work in this generation by far. Yeah, I mean, you, you think of uh, Josh McDowell's point, and I think it's a good point, the evidence that demands a verdict. But what we've tried to say at New Wine, without trying to con you know, counter that, but I think especially in our postmodern context, you think about millennials, you think about Gen Z, and, and not just the generational dynamics, but just how people are wired. I think it's all the more important for us to emphasize, you know, in a sense in place of the verdict, the, the evidence that demands a verdict that Jesus is Lord, the verdict that Jesus is the Lord demands evidence in our lives that he is Lord. And uh, I think of when Matt and I and others were invited to our friends temple, the Buddhist temple. And Brad, you know, you and Matt and I've had very dear relationships with our Zen Buddhist friends and, and other Buddhists uh, through relationship with Dharma Rain Zen Center. And hopefully we'll be doing a dialogue with our friends there for table talks sometime. But I remember the first time they invited me to come, Abbot Kilgan Carlson had asked, and Matt, you were there that night. Were you not that first night? And they were asking yeah. They asked me to just share about back in 2005, they wanted to know about compassion, how we saw compassion. And he wanted to hear, they wanted to hear stories from scripture, how we saw compassion, because they thought with the culture wars, with politics and the like, that um, evangelical Christianity, where evangelicals were not wired too much toward compassion with, you know, just the way we were engaging on all kinds of themes culturally. And uh, so I shared about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I shared about Dr. John M. Perkins' story, and I shared stories from the Gospels, Jesus' compassion. And at the end, one of the Buddhists, a former Christian, now Buddhist um, practitioner said, and I'll never forget those words, if anyone has a corner on compassion, it should be you guys with your belief that God came down from heaviness, came down from heaven, to identify with us in our brokenness, what happened. And I think of Henry Nowen with the wounded healer, where he says, the medical doctor's job, I remember talking to some medical doctors at OHSU and nurses once, um, friends of ours, and I shared Henry Nowen, what he said that the medical doctor's job is to take away pain, and that's important. But he said the minister of the gospel's job is to take pain to such a level that it can be shared, uh, the wounded healer. And I think that that's a key aspect. We're all broken and Christ does not shun us, but he identifies us with us in our brokenness and just constantly gets me beyond having to prove I'm right. I mean, I, that is such a default mechanism in me because of ego and, and you know, just having to save face but Jesus hanging there on a cross in shame when he was the one who was the right, the way, the truth, and the life, 
God forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. I mean, it's just like, that still blows my mind and just strikes lightning to my soul. You know, just like, what planet is he on? He was on planet Earth, but I'm often living on Neptune. So just my thoughts in response to that. You know, and you both talked about the revealing process, God revealing himself uh, and it, this triune relationality. And uh, I've written a bit on um, theology is, is, is dynamic and dramatic. And so there's this mimetic, mimetic process, this uh, a mimesis. Uh, Eric Auerbach writes about mimesis and how it goes. So, and Paul, you're talking about this, this pathos of suffering. Some theologians have suggested that uh, Jesus was naked on the cross. They put him up there in full humility. Um, so what, what is it that the church, what is it that you, uh, myself, uh, as individuals, but also then as the community of followers of Christ, if, if there is sp supposed to be a mimetic process, this, the, our imitating uh, Christ, because he's revealed himself as to this Godhead has revealed themselves as this love poured out in this upside down way, this insane pouring out from the cross, you know, this naked savior up there. What is it that we in the 2020 uh, era are supposed to then be, you know, mimic, mimicking? You know, what are we supposed to be participating? What does that look like? Because to participate in God, how do I do that uh, right here on earth? You know, be nice to people because I'm not going to, I don't think that we're going to be nailed to the cross. So how is it that we enter into that pathos um, that Christ came so as to mimic or uh, be revealing in our own love, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbors yourself. What kind of process or what kind of revealing in my life would that look like? Yeah, just Paul, Brad. Very, Paul. Just, just very briefly and then Brad, um, you know, I think of the, the text in John 12, 24, the kernel of wheat must fall to the ground and die to bear much fruit. And then Romans 5, I think about the same trajectory. The, the love of God is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Colonel Wheat falls to the ground and dies. The love of God is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Paul says in both Philippians 2 and 2 Timothy 4, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. So that outpouring is key. Not somehow being self-referential. It's a, always a challenge for me. But how do we, as we live into Christ through the Spirit before the Father, look at ourselves being poured out? And I think, as Brad said earlier, you know, we're three white men. Um, you know, we might not think we have power, but there are a lot of privileges we have that, and, you know, we're not, you know, for those who don't know us and such, we're not ashamed of being white men, because I think a lot of white people like ourselves hear this, and they think we're just having a guilt trip. No, it's just we're trying to recognize power dynamics, and, and our society has catered big time to our whiteness, and um, it's not that I'm saying to people who are of ethnic minority backgrounds that they first and foremost need to be the ones poured out. No, I'm saying to myself, and not as someone like with a messianic complex, like I'm going to pour myself out for them. No, it's Jesus who's poured himself out. We respond because I desperately need him. I'm the one he came to die for. So it's not like I'm going to be poured out for the people in the inner city. You sometimes find this in church pra practitioners. God bless them doing so much good work, but we all have a tendency, theologians and church planners and everyone in between, to somehow think that we're coming to serve people and pour ourselves out for them. I'm saying God has poured himself out, and we respond to that and 
we're poured out, but it's in our brokenness and our need. And I need the Holy Spirit to cause me not to try and keep living into my entitlements, keep living into my privileges and such, but to say, I want to share life. I want to learn from others. How can I use whatever resource I have to be supportive of others because they have such brilliance and beauty and profundity that it's not that they don't have a voice, it's just we're not listening. So how can I train my microphone to be listening to them? So that, that's just a few of my thoughts on this, but I need the Spirit of God to do that. I need this power of the Spirit of God because I don't have that in myself. I want to draw it to myself. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many things we can talk about, you know, with this question. It's a huge multifaceted question. I guess a couple of things I think about is it ought to affect the way we view what it means to be the church and to participate in the church. I spent a lot of years as a pastor and so often people's, you know, deal about going to a church was, okay, is this church going to meet my needs? And, um, you know, evangelicals in America can change from one church to another based on the quality of donuts served in between services. You know, it's, we're, there's so much consumerism for us uh, in, in, in the church. I so often would hear, you know, people come to our church after they've been to three other churches and, you know, they'd tell me, oh, I, Brad, we just really love this church because we used to go to such and such a church, but the worship there didn't really meet our needs. And they thought I was, I would be happy about that, but it, I just, it just made me sick because I thought, well, you know what, in six months, we're not going to be meeting your needs either. Uh, and you're going to have to go someplace else. And so, you know, what does it look like for us to just recognize, I don't participate in the church so that it meets my needs. And I participate in the, in the church to encounter Jesus Christ and serve my brothers and sisters and to serve the community and, uh, and, and to give myself, you know, for others. Um, I think Paul's theology of the gifts of the spirit is a fascinating one on this. I've just really awakened to this in the last decade or so. I think American Christians uh, almost always think about gifts as quantities, gifts as abilities. Uh, you know, we need, we need, five people with the gift of helps or something like this, in which case it's not even really the person that matters. It's just a commodification of the ability. But the fascinating thing is when you see Paul talk about gifts, he never talks about gifts that way. He talks about pastors, counselors, teachers, helpers. It's the people who are the gifts. It's not the commodity. It's not the quantity. It's not the skill. It's the person. And the reason is because the triune God in the spirit embodies Christ through the believers in the church such that we become Christ to one another. Um, and this is, a, this is Paul's theology of the gifts. And, and again, it comes back to personhood and relationship uh, in terms of participating in the church rather than quantities and meeting my needs. Amen. Yeah, I mean, today's church, it seems like uh, the mimetic process or performance of the church so often seeks to imitate one another as opposed to maybe the Godhead in which the, they're created for, you know, um, and we're creating the image. One last thing before we go and before, uh, if you have a question, if you're watching right now, now's, now would be the time when we've answered some of the questions. We really appreciate the interaction here on Facebook Live with you in the comments or even on 
our messenger app uh, through Facebook, uh, New Wine on Facebook. And so going forward, uh, what is it about New Wine? And you talked about this in the beginning, uh, Paul, you mentioned this and Brad, you mentioned this as well. Uh, the heart of New Wine is this Trinitarian uh, engagement. The mission says br building bridges uh, through Jesus in contemporary culture. So how is it then that the, the Trinitarian theology uh, pours out in and through new wine? Well, I'd, I'd really like to hear your thoughts on that, Matt, seriously, because, you know, when you were a student here at the seminary um, years ago and you were the first intern and what you sense from it, because, you know, I feel like we've learned a ton from you and continue to learn a ton from you when yeah. I'm actually getting along with you. Um, but... Uh, but I was just going to say that I, I think you, you have your finger on the pulse in some ways far better than I do on how Trinitarian theology is to engage our lives. And so when you were a student here, and then when you've been a pastor, you know, you did your doctorate, you've been a pastor, and, you know, in all kinds of contexts, how would you say Trinitarian theology through New Wine, whether it's at a, as a seminary student in Multnomah, or doing your doctoral studies at St. Andrews, or the book you did, you mentioned uh, before on the drama, the drama of God and the like, uh, and then in your pastoral work and beyond as a pastor in churches, what, what would you say that looks like for you, Matt? Yeah, I mean, I, I would just uh, go right in with what you guys were saying and echo both of the, the, the mystery part is fascinating to me that uh, the Godhead is this mystery, meaning that we can never pine the depths, you know, that there's never a point where we'll reach, like you were saying, Brad, where we're like, ooh, bah, got to know this Trinity thing. I think the thing with New Wine that was always, um, when we came to Multnomah for the seminary uh, degree, the degree can be so stable, our, our education can become stale if it's not lived. And I think that's where the new wine, um, the idea and the truth of being stretched, new wine, new wineskins is being stretched uh, so that this uh, wine can be poured into our new skins, this new creation. And I think that's the truth of the relational um, uh, aspect of the Trinity that so often doesn't get played out in today's church because like you were saying, Brad, it's about getting filled uh, and poured out into as opposed to me pouring out to, you know, and so I feel like that's the, the, the relational components and, and Paul, you just mentioned it. And I think this is the, the thing that really secured it for us with when it came to uh, jumping in and participating with new wine was this pathos of suffering, this willingness to seek the others to their own good and sometimes uh, that's allowing my good to be um, where I would think my good is the first and foremost. But then when I realize elevating the other, just like what Jesus came to do for me, I realize that that is my good. Yeah, and, and through that understanding with the spirit, allowing, just waking me up, you know, to the truth of who Jesus is. And I think that's uh, continued uh, and I just cannot get uh, uh, speak into the the imagery of the this the stretching that is so crucial I think for the the Trinitarian understanding for me because never at a time of of stepping into the triune uh, uh, truth am I ever at a point of of comfortability and I like that I like that stretching and that the uncomfortableness because 
like Brad, you were saying, it, God is so whole, though, that people can actually, in their abuse of the doctrine, pick out and categorize God so much so where I like this aspect of God through Jesus, this aspect of God for the Father, this aspect of God through the Spirit. It's not correct, but that's the depths of this, the allowance of this God, where then when we step into political issues, immigration, abortion, uh, uh, gay marriage, the Trinity really then stretches me and goes, but how is it that I'm stepping into that pathos of the other? You know, the suffering for the sake of the other, pouring out. That's why I think new wine continues to flourish. Well, thanks, Matt. Brad, any last thoughts uh, from you? Anything else from either of you? Yeah. So we totally appreciate uh, the conversation. The three of us could talk about the Trinity uh, until the Trinity comes. Uh, I mean, it's because it does, it is the core of our theology. It's the core of New Wine. It's the core of the Bible. And so we appreciate each one of you taking time out uh, Thursdays at three. We continue this Thursdays at three right here live on Facebook, New Wine, New Wine Skins on our Facebook page. But then also if you miss it or you want to share with someone, let's say you have a friend who is a bike rider or they might be a walker. Paul walks quite a bit. And so one of the things that Paul can do nowadays is go to our podcast, anchor.fm forward slash new wineskins, and he can listen to the podcast, which he likes to do because it gives him nighttime listening to stuff like this, the table talks, right, over and over again. So we have the podcast. Go on there. Uh, go on our Facebook page. We have information there about getting to the podcast. Again, anchor.fm forward slash new wineskins. Uh, we've got uh, our YouTube page. This will be loaded up. This video will be loaded up on our YouTube page. Go on over there and subscribe because not only do we have the discussion as to Trinitarian theology engaging culture here at the Table Talks, but we have new wine uh, uh, uncorked. We have new wine tastings where we're engaging COVID-19. We're engaging these aspects of society relationally and from the truth, the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. So be sure to uh, right now, before you leave the New Wine Facebook page, go on up there and like the page so that you'll get notifications as to the updates when we put new information, blog posts that we load up on our Facebook page. Then head on over to New Wine YouTube, okay, and look at some of the videos that we have. We've got Cultural Encounters, our journal, and we've got author profile and article profiles to where you can then step into who they are. Also that the education, consultation, and transformation mission of New Wine continues to flow through you as well as myself and Paul and Brad. And so we're, we're stoked at the many opportunities that the Lord has continued to bless New Wine with. YouTube, Twitter, we're at Twitter as well. We're on Instagram. So these are all places that you can follow, participate with New Wine. And if you have questions, just throw it up there on our Facebook page and one of us will come and uh, respond to that. So until next Thursday or until next week or tomorrow, this weekend, when you get back on YouTube and you look at one of the videos, New Wine Uncorked, New Wine Tastings, and New Wine Table Talks, I'm Dr. Matt Farlow. That's Dr. Paul Metzger, and that's Dr. Brad Harper. This has been uh, New Wine Table Talks live on Facebook, and we are stoked that you joined us. Until the next time, we will see you on the flip side. <laughs>